History Lecture 27, Rabbi Bleiweiss. Uh, today we're, we're in the midst of the, uh, of the very sordid affair of Beis Achav. The community, the, the, the nation has split. It's already been a, couple, a few generations in where we split. We have a northern kingdom, a southern kingdom. We are approximately uh, somewhere within about 300 years or so. Uh, before the destruction of the first temple, making it about a hundred years or so into the uh, first temple period. There's a southern kingdom under the house of David. The northern kingdom now is officially under the house of Achav. Uh, and Elie we just, the last, in our last episode, we saw uh, one of the most famous episodes in history. We saw that uh, the Nevi'e Habal on Mount, Mount Carmel, Har Kamel, sacrificing in vain to the Baal, and jumping up and down and, and, and cutting themselves, um, followed by the great miracle, uh, followed by the murder of the, 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 the slitting of the throats of these, pro of these false prophets. And then Eliyahu runs down and has his famous encounter. Anybody remember the expression? The, key, the, the, the very famous pasuk that Eliyahu comes, comes in, and he comes to the area of Harsinai, what's called Chorev, and um, he encounters a wind and, a, and, and, a, and, a, uh, and an earthquake and fire, and he doesn't encounter Hashem until he finally experiences the Hebrew. Anybody? I wrote on the, I wrote on the board. It's a really, it's a really famous thing that you should, you should know. And this is like Judaism 101 too, that you should know these basic expressions. Uh, it's a kol dmama daka, a still small voice, which rightly so is, 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 is the stuff of long drushes. Uh, on, on Torah that a lot of the time it's not, when one encounters true spirituality or emis, it's not always in the flamboyant or glamorous or exciting, charismatic uh, presentation of Torah. Often it comes to you in a simple, elegant insight. And that's how Eliyahu encountered it. Um, we now know the last famous story to, to take up the uh, discussion of Ahab, the king Ahab, Ahab, and his wife Jezebel, Ezebel, involves a simple, interesting figure who has a vineyard. His name is Navos, and interestingly, I happen to be learning the Gemara in Sanhedrin, and there was just a reference to exactly this episode in my Gemara learning. Does that ever happen to you? Whatever you're learning, it all comes up in everything else you're doing in life. It always happens. Whatever, uh, one, one thing that always seems to come true, whatever we're talking about, it's always in this week's Parsha, whatever this week happens to be. Anyway, Namos had a vineyard, and Izevel and, and at her instigation, because remember, she's the real bad guy. She's the power, she's the brains behind the operation. She instigates her husband. She gets him incited to do, to do sin. So they decide that uh, they want his vineyard, and he says, I'm not selling it to you. It's mine, not only is mine, it's my ancestral property. And that is significance, Midiraisa. From a Torah perspective, we divvied out the land. We went through, we've been going through the Bereshit Baralokim, and we saw it when Yoshua came into the land, they parceled out Eretz Yisrael, Alpi al Goral, by Kaddish Baruch Hu's talking lottery. It told each of the tribes, this is your land, this is your portion. Within the tribes, each family got an ancestral property, and Navos is sitting on his. And it's not the king's. And he's makbid on Tyra. This is, the Barbanel expl explains this. It's his steachusa. And he doesn't want to give up, he doesn't want to violate the love of giving up his, his, his ancestral field. Lo litzmisus. You're not allowed to, to sell it for anything. And so he refuses the king and queen. And you have to remember, the king and queen are not really legitimate king and queen. Uh, they're, the, they're the northern king and queen. And that, that doesn't carry much weight. 
And Izevil decides, that's fine. You don't have to sell us your land. We'll get it anyway. And so she arranges through, this is the part of the Gemara, my, my, my Gemara in Sanhedrin's comments on, comments on, she arranges to frame Navos to accuse him of being morid b'malchus, to rebelling, being seditious, rebelling against the king, which is a capital crime. She gets these bad guys to, t- to bear testimony uh, against Navos. And what's interesting, and this is part of my argument, part of the argument, I, I have a lot of theses uh, that are running through our history presentation, is even some of the arch villains of history um, in this period actually aren't really so bad. I mean, you've heard their name Izevel before? Yeah. Don't name your daughters that, please. Izevel, right? Something to do with garbage, right? Not, not a very pretty name. Anyway, uh, she's a, a despicable individual. And yet even Izevel in these lofty prophetic times that we're talking in, notice the due process that she goes through. She, she could have had them summarily executed as they all did, as the common way among the uh, non-Jewish kings and queens. I remember she comes from non-Jewish royalty, a Phoenician princess, and she could have done that too, but no, she's married to Ahab, she's part of Klal Yisrael now, she's going through due process, and she brings the whole case before, in a very roundabout, complicated act, she has testi- yeah, she has witnesses to testify, they bring it to Beistin, and Beistin finds Navos guilty, he's Chayev Misa. Uh, now, of course, in the Basin also, the Basin are, are appointed Rishayim. It's the only instance in the entire Tanakh, the Tanakh covers the entire period until the beginning of the Second Temple period, it's the only time we find in all of the Tanakh, very interestingly, that, they, uh, that the Basin of Rishayim, that this particular court is a, is a wicked court. All of the courts are righteous, and the times are, are characterized as being very, very righteous times. And again, the whole court was set up by Izevel. Meaning, Klal Yisrael, as Klal Yisrael, remains on a very lofty level. If there are chips, in, if there are cracks in the system, if there are problems and corruption, it's coming from the non-Jew. That's, that's evident. That's, that's clear in the Mepharshim talk about this. And I'm mostly, again, I'm, I'm, I'm influenced by Rabbi Victor Miller's presenta- excellent presentation of history. So this certainly is coming th- from his perspective as well. Now, when this happens... Ahav has a very interesting reaction. Ahav actually falls ill, and he's bedbound. He becomes sick with fear of Hashem. He knows that there's divine retribution, and you're going to behave in a wicked way, and this is also testifying to his own incredibly, immensely complex, self-contradictory kind of uh, personality, and he's bedbound. Um, and he himself recognizes his hangups. Listen, here's a man with all the wealth in the world. He had taken the northern kingdom to becoming one of the world's great economies. He'd expanded the borders beyond any previous, uh, unprecedentedly, about any previous uh, greatness. And he's obsessed with one, one little man's vineyard. Or alternately, he's preoccupied by Eliyahu Navi. One old man in shepherd's clothes. Can't be sat, can't be satisfied until they're they're somehow out of the way. You know, I gotta get everything. I can't I can't rest until I get the vineyard. And he himself recognizes the internal contradiction, the craziness, the, the hypocrisy involved in all of this. He knows that they represent MS. He knows that, that uh, Navos himself, his refusal to sell his vineyard is totally justified in the Torah. 
And when Eliyahu and indeed, you can be certain, when you've got a great man of, of Hashem, an Isha Lukim like Eliyahu, he's a Novi, he comes to Ahab and he gives him one of the most stinging, famous rebukes of all time. He says to him, he's, I'll, I'll give you the, the, the Pasuk, he says, Ratsachta Vagam Yerashta, you murdered and you also, you also inherited? Happy now, Ahab? Does this remind you of a recent episode in which we saw somebody flagrantly sinning and then living in disgust and revulsion, self-disgust at his sin? What is it, Akiva? David's son, excellent. That's what I'm picking up. What's his name? Come on, Barak, help us here. It wasn't Absalom, it was his half-brother. It was Absalom's sister Tamar, but who was the half-brother? Amnon. That's the one. Amnon who lusts after his half-sister and finally, after he consummates the deed, shockingly, he hates her immediately. Because that's the way we are, too. We are disgusted at ourselves. The deepest form of self-loathing comes when we see our potential, our inherent greatness, and then we notice that we don't live up to it. That's who Kuala Yisrael is. It's, it's, it's quite a burden, being Jewish, no? Because we know we're, we're capable, we're worthy of really tremendous things, and when we blow it, the guilt... You know, the guilt alone is, is immense, and that's what Ahab is going through. And, and Eliyahu's um, rebuke just gets him to the gets him to the quick. He says, he says, and, and Ahab has no response. He says, Ahab, you and your entire household will die a bitter, miserable death. And the sign that you know it's all Mina Shemaim that a Kaddish Baruch was getting final retribution. Dogs will lick up and lap up your blood. That will be your final. Uh, that'll be your final comeuppance. And utterly justified. And when this happens, I mean, how are we supposed to understand such a passage? And we're summarizing all of the Tanakh. So as always with everything else, if you're intrigued by the story, don't take my word for it. Go, go learn the, the sugya. Go learn this chapter. Uh, it's, in, it's in Sefer Malachim. Uh, in greater, it's near the end of the first book of Sefer Malachim. Go learn it with the Mepharshim and brought in properly in greater depth. But when you hear this kind of thing, oh, what is the Kaddish Baruch doing? So he's going to blast face Acha. That's good for the Jewish people. Well, what's, that, what's going on there? A Kaddish Baruch takes delight in punishing? Shira Siyam. Remember, remember, remember we're standing by the, by the Yams, Yamsu. Am Yisrael has just been, has just been redeemed. The angels in, in celebrating the thrilling, thrilling exodus from Egypt. They, they start singing a song. Hashem in the Medrash says, Atem Omrim Shi... Excuse me. The work of my hands are, are, are drowning in the sea. You want to sing a song? Hashem takes no pleasure by destroying even the wicked. He prefers tshuva. He wants us to make tshuva. He wants us to, to show our great, our great side. Uh, he's, he's, he's sad, as it were, not that it kind of powerful experiences human emotions, but he's sad. Uh, in, in so far as sadness, he, he sees what we're capable of, and that's tragic. So then why this, somebody just, who, who, who said that's harsh? Right, so, so, right, it is harsh. What, what's the point? Lessons. It's lessons for all of us, meaning you assume such a position. You are, even somebody like Acham was a Talmud Chacham, we saw his virtues last week. But even somebody like him, he should know better, and you do this. There has to be some comeuppance. People cannot be allowed, you know, the basic order of the universe has to be that there's, there's, there's uh, crime and punishment, there's, there's schar and onish, there's, there's, there's reward and, and, and punishment, and that's simply, he's the Diana Emmas. And he takes no pleasure, but he has to do it. It's Achav, Achav uh, motivated him to do that. I think that's, how, that's, that's the context that you have to see this in. When Achav does fall, and he's gonna fall spectacularly, uh, the North never recovers. It's, it's, 
a gradual, I mean, if you had to do it on a graph, it's more like this. But it's, it's without being a steady downhill, it's a, it's a shaky graph. But they'll never, they'll never reach the level of prosperity that they had under the house of Ahab. Um, meanwhile, down in the south, because we're keeping tabs on what's going on as, as history proceeds, Asa's son, anybody remember his name? Yehoshaphat, whose valley, what we name the valley, actually begins right due east of where we're standing right now. Who's been to Kever Shimon Atzadik? Have you been to Kever Shimon Atzadik? And you've lived here for, and, and nobody else has been to the gravesite of Shimon Atzadik? You live a few. I know, I know, but I still want to make you feel guilty. I, it's my prerogative, okay? I know, I know. I have to take you over there. It's really, we should go sometime after lunch. I should just take you over there. Was that on, on, the, on the yard side? Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, he's buried just a few blocks down the street. I don't think you should by yourself, especially since you don't know where you're going. But if you grab me, if you make an appointment with me, not tomorrow, but maybe one of the days this week, if you're interested, I'll take you there and I'll tell you good stories. I'm not, and I, there's an aura around me. No, it's not that there. It's not that I have any uh, knowledge or anything. These days, maybe it's a little bit schwach because they're pretty. They're, they don't like us over there. They're such nice people too. East Jerusalem, right that, that way. But um, I know, I know my way around, and I, I, I have, a, I've been there many, many times. At least, a, you're not going to get lost. Hopefully, that'd be really bad if you got lost with the tour guide. Um, and and I kind of know what to look for if things are not quite so. Mm, you know, on the up and up, what's going on over there. So I'm, I, I, it's better to go with me, not that it's foolproof. Anyway, anyway, just over there, that was all, that was not relevant to our discussion. Stop, let me get back to, on, on folks. Is topographically, if you notice where we are, you can kind of look out the window a little bit. Topographically, a valley commences. There is a major valley that begins more or less exactly where Shimon Tzadik is buried. And if you follow its, its line, the valley, the ravine opens up in what we call East Jerusalem, what's called Vadi Joes. Vadi Joes is the Arabic version of Yehoshaphat. That's where Joes comes from, uh, the Arabic term. And then it, it goes down and it, it, becomes, it becomes precipitous around the old city where there's a deep divide on the eastern flank of, temp, of the Temple Mount and the old city all along the east, uh, uh, meaning... It divides, that valley is what divides the old city from uh, the Mount of Olives, and it continues its natural path. The entire valley actually continues out towards the Yamamelach, towards the Dead Sea. It's ultimately called the Kidron Valley, but the biblical name for the valley is Emek Yehoshaphat. And Yehoshaphat is one of our great figures. He's the son of Asa. If you remember Asa, we talked about Asa the great king who had flaws, but was, 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 uh, was a very important figure. Um, Yehoshaphat, his son, rules, we know the following. He rules for 25 years. We're informed by the Pasuk, and we can take it at face value. He, like his father, is a great tzaddik, to this, to, uh, but he's unique. Um, the Pasuk in Divra Hayamim describes him that they taught Tyra in Yehuda, and with them was the Sefer Tyra of Hashem. And on this Pasuk, the Gemara Ksubo says a comment. Gemara says, Yehoshaphat, Melech Yehuda, Kshahaya Roet Talmid Chacham. The king was such a great, unusual figure. Anytime he beheld a Torah scholar, Haya Omed Mikiso, he would get up from his own throne, which is extraordinary, but a king technically doesn't have to do that. We all honor the king. He generally is not in a position to honor others, but Yoshafat was different. He would get up from his own throne. Umechabko, umenashko, he would hug and kiss the scholar. Vakoilo, Rebbe, Rebbe, Mari, Mari. My Rebbe, my Rebbe, my teacher, my teacher. That was the reverence 
that was the degree that of Kavod Torah that Yoshafat showed. Um, and as great a figure as Yoshafat is, and we're going to see he's got some flaws too, but he's, he's a tremendous and inspiring kind of a personality, um, he had one similar defa- uh, defect that his predecessors also shared. What was the one thing since the days, since, since, since all the way back, uh, that they were not successful in doing? Thank you, Aaron Friedman, you got, you got the answer, ding, ding, ding. He too didn't, couldn't, wouldn't remove the bamos. Remember those bamos, right? Didn't get rid of the places of high worship. We had all analysis in an earlier class as to what that was about. Aaron? No. Asa did a lot of things. Asa too never got rid of the bamos. Asa was on par. He, the Pasuk equates him with David Melech himself. And he did a lot of great things. But he didn't get rid of the bamos. And neither does Yoshafa. And that they're going to be a fixture now uh, for many generations. Okay, so he doesn't get rid of the bamos. Now... With all of his greatness, his low point, his undoing, Yoshafat's undoing, was his coalition that he made with the Northern Kingdom. And you think, what was Yoshafat doing by forming an alliance with Ahab and the Mepharshim? Talk about it. Do you ever see anything about this? Why? Talk about an unholy alliance. You don't make a, a, I mean, okay, Northern Kingdom, they're all Jews, but Ahab is one of the worst of the worst, and he makes a coalition. one of the simple explanations was he was striving one more time for Jewish unity, which is admirable, and that's always when the, that's always what we're looking for. We're still dreaming of the return of the lost ten tribes that the Northern Kingdom would become nine and a half tribes, uh, and, and and perhaps he's seeking unity. He's doing it the same Shemaim, but as we learn, Abbas Rabbi we learn Al Tischaber La Russia. Don't make a pact. Don't connect with a wicked person. A filu l'shem shemaim. Even if you're doing it with the purest of motives, don't do it. They decide they're going to go to war with the neighboring nation in the north of Aram. Aram is one of the is, is the uh, bad guy of choice during this period. They go to war with Aram, and um, it was during this war that Aram actually wins by killing one person. Nobody else falls in battle. Yoshafat is spared, and most of this, all their soldiers, the one person who dies, according to the prediction of the Navi, is Ahav himself. And very strikingly, what happens immediately after his death? A group of dogs come gathering around his carcass, licking up the blood, precisely as is predicted, uh, in battle, by sword, by, by, by the king, by Hadad, Ben Hadad, excuse me, Ben Hadad Melech Aram, who himself, what a, I mean, this is a brief, this is a summary. When I do this in my Sefer Malachim Shir, I go to great depth. What a, what a Russia Ben Hadad was, because Ben Hadad, Ahab was actually compassionate to Ben Hadad, and this is the thanks that he gets. Ben Hadad is murdered, Ahab, Ahab's blood is licked up. His son now replaces him as the next king. His name is Ahaziah. Those of you who still have, I gave, I gave out lots of handouts, so if you have, thank you. So you can see now Ahaziah is next. We're not quite done with base Ahav. Right? Ahazi is right here. And um, he now replaces his father. Um, if you didn't get any of these handouts, send me an email, manashablaiwes at gmail, and I'll give you whatever you want. Timelines, handouts. I'll send you by email or I'll print it and I'll bring it in. So all these things. If you guys wind up joining the class, I'll give you all the things that you didn't get. Um, Ahazia eventually falls injured and Eliyahu tells him, you'll never recover. Because Ahazia is not, he's a chip off the old block. He's, he's not so far removed from dear old dad. 
here's an interesting little episode in history that's not well known and it's one of my favorites. I tell it when I'm guiding the area of Ein Gedi. Um, Yoshafa down in the south returns to the south and a big war is brewing. Three of our historical enemies are going to attack uh, Kalal Yisrael. They include Ammon and Moab and others as well. They're coming to do in Yoshafat. Vehinam bechatzatzon tamar hi ein gedi, and they're standing right there in a place called chatzatzon tamar, which is a uh, synonym with ein gedi. The king, meanwhile, and his army are up in Jerusalem, and I described again Emek Yoshafat. That's right over here. They're in Jerusalem, and you access the place by way of the valley, and they're understandably agitated. War is brewing. Nobody likes a war. Um, if Hashem fights all the wars, why should we ever be concerned about war? Why should that be a problem for Yoshavad? He's such a tzaddik. Shouldn't he be confident? Shouldn't he have bitachon, in other words? So we say, we say, katonti mi chesed. Maybe it's true, Hashem fights our wars, but maybe we've used up all of our schuyos. Maybe we don't have any rights anymore. Maybe it's time for us to lose. It's not always clear that we're going to win these wars. Uh, I'm not, I refuse to slide into this tangent just now. We'll do this when we get to the modern era. But uh, somebody this morning tried to goad me on a little bit and ask, was the, wasn't, Rabbi, wasn't the war that we just had this last summer, Tafshin Ayin Dalit, didn't we have this war operation, what was this one, uh, Castled? No, 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 this was that, uh, those are weird names. Protective Edge. Protective Edge, and I couldn't remember it. Weird names for <laughs> these battles. Anyway, um, wasn't this in Nochanas Mitzvah? And I, uh, I, I don't think, I think that that's highly debatable. And we, I, we took it on. You know, sometimes you don't always have a Kaddish Baruch Hu fighting your battles if we're not fighting our own battles in the, with the Eight Sahara. But in this case, in this case, Yoshafat leads the, the, the entire southern kingdom, Yehuda, in an immense tefillah. Uh, they daven for help that the same nations, that Hashem would not allow the Jews to invade. Remember, when we came out of Egypt, we were not allowed to touch Ammon, we were not allowed to touch Moab. And, you know, had we gotten rid of them then, they wouldn't have been a thorn in our sides today. So, you know, we got credit for leaving them alone then. As you commanded Hashem, please deliver us from their hands today. They outnumber our small Jewish army. In the morning, they descend by way of the valley through what's called Midbar Tekoa. You can actually hike this. Does anybody hike? And I, I, I hiked this before. It's a great hike. Nice, nice long hike down, down uh, through Tekoa. Today, it's a little bit dangerous, unfortunate. Unfortunately, they praise Hashem and they actually say a pasuk that I think many, I hope many of you, if not all of you, just said a few minutes ago. Where's this pasuk from? V'anachnu lo neida. We don't know. V'alach anachnu lo neida. Go look at the. What is it? Good. Good. What is it? Excellent. It's the last paragraph in Tachanun. When we're getting up, it's that 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 pasuk comes from this episode in history where Yoshafat fights his uh, battles, fight, fights his enemies over by Ein Gedi. Um, Hashem tells them, the Malbim describes this, Hashem has effectively told them, I want you to fight this particular battle, Yoshafat, by doing nothing. That's kind of scary. And for most of us who kind of feel like we have to do something in this world, do something, right? So they're just told to do nothing. Hashem will destroy the enemy. Your job, the Navi tells them, there's a Navi present, and he tells them, you lift your voice in song to a Kaddish Baruch They say, okay. And they have bitachon. Remember, we're living in times of prophecy when the word of, a, word of Hashem is incandescent and they are, they're on a very lofty level. They raise their voice in song. 
and the miracle that, that they behold is across the, across the Dead Sea on the other side in, in today's Jordan, the enemies across the way suddenly turn on one another. They start arguing with one another as happens often in war and they start fighting each other until they ultimately destroy each other to the last, almost to the last man and, and the last man flees leaving all of their camps and all of the, uh, the booty of war, the plunder of war available on Israel, their job in this war at the end of, at the, after everything takes place, they, it takes them three days to go down into the valley and collect all the plunder of war. And in the fourth day, they go back to the base of Mikdash, bring everything back dedicated to, the, to, to Kedusha, to Hekdesh, and then give thanks to Kodesh Baruch Hu. Uh, that's a good question. I don't remember. Was it all given back? I have to. We have to go re-examine this. If you want to look at the second book of Divrei Yomim, chapter chapter Chaf. Who's learned Divrei Yomim here? I didn't think so. You have. Good for you. It's good. You should know your Tanakh a little bit. This is a less known parsha. It's also part of our heritage. We should be familiar. Um, the last act of Yoshafat that I'm going to focus on is, is 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 one that is beguiling, and I don't really have shot on it. Maybe you have a suggestion. But you remember before, he made some kind of an alliance with Ahab, before Ahab's death, to go out to battle. Now, he, he firms up that coalition with Ahab's son Ahaziah in the north. And Anavi warns him and said that all the good you've done, Yoshavid uh, is going to be undermined by this. And he has a son named Yehoram. And shockingly, he makes a shidduch. Ahab's daughter is a woman by the name of Asalia or Asalyahu, and Asalyahu marries Yehoram. And this is among the most wicked alliances in marriage in all of history. Chazal tell us again, Yoshafat is acting L'shem Shemaim. He wants to make peace. He wants to reunite the north with the south. But again, he should have shunned the Rishayim. Ahaziah, meanwhile, has died and is replaced by his brother Yehoram, and that's the last ruler of the house of Ahab. And let me clarify something. So there's Yehoram, who's now the new king in the north. And then Yehoram's sister, Asalia, who's married to the next king in the south by the name of Yehoram. And that's just to keep us on our toes so we shouldn't get overly uh, sanguine here. Meaning, in other words, there's a Yehoram in the north and there's a Yehoram in the south. And you can look at it. On your, uh, you know, on your, on your helpful list here, or they call it Jehoram. So Jehoram in the north and Jehoram in the south are, for a short period of time, kings simultaneously, just to keep us nice and confused. Right, which was backwards because the previous king was a Chazia too. I guess they like yet one another's name, choice of names for their babies, and they, you know, I guess today also, what, what are the popular names in America? David, Tiffany, I don't know. I made up Tiffany. I can't believe that Tiffany would ever be that popular. But okay, you never know. Okay, so now we have the last king of the Beidachav in the north. And now, and now Yehoram ben Yehoshaphat becomes king in the south. And he rules for eight years. And for the first time in any major way, it all goes south in the south. Meaning it's not a good story. It gets really interesting. A lot of, lot of intrigue. See what happens is Yehoram married Asalia, and Asalia, rather than being elevated by being part of base David, she brings her schmutz, all the idolatry from the north, down to the south. The pasuk says she's scheming and she turns Yehoram to idolatry. 
not that not that we're meant to understand that he or his son ever, ever actually served Avodah but neither do they take any action to stop her. And she is an inciter. And when you have, you know, you have to realize one of the qualities of idolatry. And if you ever wonder, you have to look at history to see what it does. Idolatry is basically just the opening to every other kind of heinous act in the world. It's not a coincidence that the idolaters offered their son, for example, to the Molech in fire, because when you, when you turn your back on the Kaddish Baruch Hu, effectively you're turning to immorality. And that's what it does. And in this case, Asalia was idolatry incarnate. And she says to her husband, once she's getting him all excited and, and basically desensitizing him to morality, she says, you know, Yehoram, your household, based David, is basically all competition for you and the throne. And if you want to consolidate your, your authority, your sovereignty, you'll do very well to kill them off. And somehow he's convinced. Uh, although we'll see, it's not, it doesn't happen immediately. But the, the pact is made to kill off all of base David. And of course, Masalia is doing this with a nod and a wink. She doesn't have such a high regard for her husband. She has bigger plans herself. She'd like to take over the whole operation. Thank you very much. What's interesting, during the same dark period in the South, uh, and there's a reference to it, if you pay attention, if you're doing Flemish now, it's going to come up in a couple weeks in Parsha. At the end of the Parsha, in a couple weeks, we're going to see Asaph's family lineage. It's during Yehoram's rule that Edom's kings, Edom being Asaph, the kings of Asaph, finally re-emerge as a power. Ula'om mila'om ye'ematz, Parshish toldos. Ula'om mila'om ye'ematz. Rivka, remember with the kids, Yisosua banim bekirba, they're running around inside Esav and Yaakov, and the, the, she's told by Ruach HaKodesh that you have these two great nations in your womb, and one, when one is on the up, the other one's going to be down. And, and conversely, when one, the other one is up, the, other, the, the one is going to be down. And indeed, we see that literally in history. Am Yisrael was on top with Beis David with eight flawed and, and varying in terms of their quality, but eight essentially decent kings, some more than others. And when those eight start to go downhill, so too Asav will emerge and start to go uphill. And they'll, become, they'll, they'll be transcendent. Um, in fact, we, live, we find there in the Parsha, in, 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 in Breshis, that there are eight Edomite kings who ruled before there was a king in Israel. And what that means is that you know, they, they, their rule will correspond with, uh, you know, with the downfall of Klal Yisrael. You can go look in greater depth um, in, all, in all of these matters. Um, Yehoram is the first to lead the southern kingdom of Yehuda away from Tyra. Edom sees a, sees a cue and responds and rebels. Um, we understand that the, that the supremacy of Edom lasts till today. So if you're ever trying to do a history, you want to do a, a PhD study on at which point in history did Esav rise up and, and overtake Yaakov, it's at this point in history. Dafka, when we were stumbling in our own sins, um, Esav, Esav has supremacy um, really till today. I mean, how do we see Esav? in very broad terms in history from this point. I mean, it's not immediate. It's not like they rise up and suddenly swallow the world, but we see them starting to emerge, and when do they reach their peak? Under which rule? Rome. Rome is Asab, and then later, where do we see where do we see Asab manifested? 
Uh, for sure. And I was going to say Christianity and Christian Europe and it, as one manifestation of it, the Nazi party, which is a secularized version, but it's absolutely Esav. Um, some hold it as Amalek, who's a direct descendant of Esav. Um, till today is the dominant force and one of the battles that will be fought at the end of time, which we may be approaching, depending on your historical perspective, at the end of days, it will be with Esav. But here is a turning point in history in this, in this discussion. Wait, Rob, I, I thought that if the Jewish people marry uh, Mashiach to come, like, you just kind of skip that entire thing. <laughs> Not entirely clear, and you're ahead of me. Stick with me till next spring, and we'll talk about the days of Mashiach to try to make some sense of it. There is, in the last chapter of Sanhedrin, Perak Chalik, well, some say it's the second to last chapter, um, there are a lot of bits and pieces, very famous, understandably, because we all want to know what's going to fall out in the end of time. Um, but sometimes they're contradictory, and they're certainly very difficult to piece together into a linear whole picture. Um, if you seek to make Hasrashalom the cinematic Hollywood version of how it's going to come out, you will fail because the, there are too many contradictory sources. So there's an indication that something like you say is going to happen, but we don't know. We don't have clarity. Eliyahu comes south. He sees Yehoram ben Yehoshaphat, the southern ruler, uh, for who he is. And he tells him, because what a Navi does, they, they say it like it is, they don't hold back. They say, you, sir... Eliyahu tells Yoram, you will die an agonizing death. Your bowels will fall out. Ouch. Ouch and ick. Um, and indeed, as a prophet, when the Nabi told you, you know, there's no two ways about it. That's exactly what happens. He does. Yehoram dies. His own son, who you saw on the list correctly, his son now is this, the next Ahaziah, Ben Yehoram, takes over. Ahaziah now rules for about a year. But meanwhile, lurking in the background watching all of these events is the wicked Asalia. In English spelled sometimes Atalia is her name. And Atalia is watching and conspiring the entire time. And now her moment comes and she says to her son, Go north, son. Go to my family. My brother Yehoram is now going to battle. And I want you to go to battle too, and you'll be successful beyond your dreams. And it's all a conspiracy. She arranges his assassination in a battle against Yehu. And I'm going to talk about that battle soon, but she's successful. Now, this is all happening in Yehuda. you got to picture this. We're living in, again, I keep saying this, the times are lofty, and the people are not idolaters, and they're on a very, very high level. They're watching intrigue in the, in, in the palace of the king, and they're appalled. And because they're not in power, their, their, their ability to impact it is limited. They can't necessarily do much about it, but they're not happy. Um, and in fact, Yehor, they express their displeasure with the king when Yehoram, Natalia's husband, and Ahaziah's uh, father, when he dies, he's the first of, of the house of David, who, as the Pasuk says, he's not buried in Kivrei Malachim. He doesn't go with his forebears. He's not worthy of it. Okay, yeah, he was the next line, and he was a legitimate king, and he did live up to it, so he didn't get a proper burial. That's a big deal, by the way. Till today, the Hever Kedisha, who's in charge of burial, is very careful to try to bury according to relative righteousness. There's separate plots in, uh, in any given cemetery. I mean, they don't, they're, always, they're not always... They don't always know who's, who's righteous objectively. Sometimes they, they have to use their discretion. But if you go, let's say, anybody been to Harmanuchos near Harnof, famous, important, basic pharos, so you see at the very top, 
there is an overwhelming uh, embarrassment of riches of so many great people all in the same area, that's not a coincidence. The Chavar Gadisha made sure that Rav Moshe was near, Rav, Rav Ron Cutler was near, the Belzer Rebbe, and, and the Rav, Rav, Rav Shlomo Zaman Orbach, and the Rav Eliashev, and so many, so many great luminaries are all more or less together. Um, yeah, the basic virus is organized, and they have their own internal scheme. They don't publish it because you can imagine the kind of controversy that would leave. Hey, I don't want to be there. I want to be here. Everybody wants to want, wants to be with the, the with the righteous, but we bury people where they belong uh, for eternity. And Yoram didn't make it. He didn't make the cut. This dark period in history, don't think of it as characteristic. It lasts a grand total of only fifteen years. Um, which I emphasize that because it's really the aberration, it's the exception to the rule. Really in the South, they're very decent, but it just took this one period for there to be a big blight on the Jewish people, and again, that coincides with Esau's rise. Yehoram had ruled eight years, the Chazias one year, and we're going to see Asalia is the one person to assume the title queen. It's the first time in history, and she rules for about six years. It's an aberration because, among other things, a woman is not supposed to have srara, not supposed to have that power, but it's not like Asalia is a legitimate person. She's not from the house of David. So if you look, um, for example, at the different Mepharshim and they, they list the kings of the house of David that they go through this, this, the first temple period by Yisrishon, she doesn't make the cut. Even though technically she was the ruler for six years and she's called the queen, but it's not real, it's not legitimate. Who else is queen? You know, this... I mean, I've been referring to Ezebel as a queen, but she's only queen because she's the, she's the wife of the king in the north, and anyway, the north, they're not really kings. Do we ever find another queen in history, speaking of women rulers? Do we ever find women rulers in history? Esther's, but she's not a queen over the Jews. She, she happens to be a queen because she married the king. Right, so that didn't really count. What's that? I mean, it's a queen of the sense of having married into it, but not being the sole ruler. Do we find a, an actual certifiable queen? We, she's not a queen, but she's a prophet. She's a, a prophetess and a shofetess. Of course, what am I thinking of? Devorah. But we talked about that as a woman. It's it, she's the exception to the rule, and the Medrash says that was really a spit in the face of Sisra. Right? She deserved that. Later on, do we find a queen? There is one. It's really interesting. She's the one sole righteous. I mean, again, I'm not counting Devorah here. Devorah was at Sadiqis too. But she's the one sole righteous queen, and she's also the exception to the rule. Anybody, anybody know who it is? What her name is? There's a street, not that this counts for anything, but there's a street named after her in downtown, near Rehov Amnon Batamar, Shlom Malka. Pay attention, Shlom Malka. She's, she's, she's the one queen of the Hasmonean period. Very interesting figure. Anyway, Asalia is now queen in the south. Cut, break. Focus on Eliyahu Navi for the last time. Hashem tells Eliyahu, do you remember, his, with all of his virtues and the huge impact he has on Klal Yisrael, he was Tovea Kavod Ha'av and not Tovea Kavod Abain. He loved Hashem at the expense of loving Klal Yisrael. Uh, and he, sa- he tells Eliyahu that Eliyahu, you're not going to die. Rather, you're going to ascend. You're going to be taken to heaven by a storm never fully die, and we're going to encounter Eliyahu frequently throughout history. This is the last time we find him in this iteration. And what is his response? He's learning with his Talmud, Elisha. Elisha uh, ben Shafat. And um, Elisha, the Gemara Brachos tells us, is a model student. He never leaves his Rebbe's side. He is what we learn. We learn the concept of Shimush Chachamim from Elisha, 
who learns, who never leaves his Rebbe's side. What is Shimush Chachamim? I just mentioned Shimush and Olpan. What is Shimush Chachamim? Directly serving them. Serving them. I, I'm, a, I'm a Shamish for them. I'm using them to learn from them. But that means, how do you learn from a Rebbe? Well, you know, this is okay. You can sit and shear, and you can even stay awake, and take some notes, that's all great. But what are other things you, what are other things you can do? Isn't there a story? Yeah. Good, good. What are some of the stories you know? A story, uh, few stories like this. That's right. And then suddenly you heard something from under the bed. Well, what is that? And the, and the, and the Rebbe said, Aval Rebbe, Torahi, Vililmod, remember this? Vililmod on Eight Street. It's Torah, and you need to learn. Also, that's Torah. It's all Torah. Everything we do, because, you know, unlike every other intellectual exercise or endeavor, like in university, you just need to go to the class and you got the lecture or get the crypt notes, whatever it is. But in Tyra, it's a life system, so everything is fair game. So he says, I'm just learning Tyra. Of course, the Rebbe's like, get out of there. He followed, they followed the Rebbe to the, to the outhouse. They followed the Rebbe everywhere, because it's all Tyra. Watch how he lives his life. And you can learn Tyra. So Eli, Elisha is the model for that. He never leaves his Rebbe's side. And as long as they're learning Tyra, Hashem doesn't touch Eliyahu. It's part of the rules. If you're learning Torah, we saw that by David and Melech too. David doesn't die. What's that? Martin Chavez tells this. That's right. Moed Katan tells these stories. Correct. And they don't die as long as they're learning Torah. And then in the end, um, in the end, there's a break in their learning, and Eliyahu is taken to heaven. He's one of the figures that never dies. Um, and Elisha now takes over as the guttle Hador. He's characterized as um, he asks for he asks Hashem. In order to fill his, 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 his job better, he feels deficient. Uh, he says, I'm not on the level of my master, my Rebbe, so please, Hashem, give me a double portion. Because he asks L'shem Shemayim, Hashem grants him this. Symbolically, Elisha takes the mantle, the cloak of his Rebbe, and his first act, act is to strike the waters, and the waters part. And that shows, we understand from that, that Eliyahu's spirit rests on Elisha. Um, it's, this is a turn, another turning point in history. It's from this point in history, when Eliyahu departs, that Nevoah starts to uh, decline, and it'll keep declining until it disappears. But this is the beginning of the decline of, of, of Nevoah that used to be widespread. And it's also the beginning of Elisha's emergence. He surpasses his Rebbe in every way. Hashem grants him great abilities as a Navi, as a prophet, but much more. Um, the Radak tells us that Eliyahu performed eight famous miracles. If you, if you tally them up, you find eight great miracles. And if you tally Elisha's, it's 16. He literally gets a double portion. I'll give you just a few examples. Ooh, let me mention this too. They stole from us. Tell me if you know what I'm talking about. They're, they're robbers. They stole from us. Some of these great stories were lifted and plagiarized and used to describe? Jesus. Yes, Yashka. Jesus, that new religion that they invented, the Christians, they'll, they'll lift from the stories of Eliyahu and Elisha, not just them. They'll also plagiarize from, from great, great sages, Rabbi Hanina Bendosa. Oh, right, right, right. So you see all these stories. They, they, I mean, basically, Jesus, as they created him, was a repository, was like the greatest hits of all of Chazal. They're like, gave it, oh, yeah, that's a good story. We'll make that happen to Jesus, too. That's how you can read it. So, so when we talk about striking the waters and the waters part, that's one of the Christian stories that they tell. But they get it from here. Uh, some of the famous stories with oh, Elisha. The right? Oh, for sure, for sure. Left and right. I mean, there's nothing original about Jesus. Yashka, we can call it in Yiddish. Okay. Um, 
Of these, we know that Eliyahu revived one dead person. Who was he again? Kodesh Chazal, Medrash? Yonah Hanavi. That was Eliyahu. Well, Elisha got two. Who were the two? Chabakuk, we're going to see soon enough. And Naaman, what's that? That was Chabakuk. The Shunamis' son, who, who Chazal says is Chabakuk the Navi. And then Naaman, who was, because he had Saras, was as good as dead. So he's revived as well. Um, Elisha purifies the water by Yericho when nobody had anything to drink. Uh, there's a really shocking scene where a bunch of, with 42 kids uh, come out and mock the Gadol Hador, the Navi, and they call him Alei Kareach, Alei Kareach, you bald-headed, you, you bald-headed jerk you. And um, Elisha does this Shem Shemaim, he has to teach Kabbat um, Two she-bears emerge from the forest and uh, kill all 42 of those kids. Female bears. Oh, bears. Bears, yeah. Um, there's a miracle of oil that he repeats. He turns water into blood. Um, when the Shunamis is barren woman, we're going to read her parsha we're after this week. Elisha's big in this week's parsha, so that's why I'm excited to get to do this now. I told you everything's always in Parsha. So, so pay attention to the Haftarah. Uh, it's my son Elisha's birthday, and guess why we named him? Uh, we're very excited about the figure Elisha. Uh, his birthday is this week, and obviously we, we had him in mind. We had the Haftarah in mind. Um, she didn't have a baby, and Elisha, with Hashem's help, obviously, it's all Hashem, everything, uh, facilitates his birth, and later on he dies and is revived. Um, Aram's army comes to attack, and he strikes them with blindness. Um, even after Elisha dies, and I'm ahead of myself right now, but since I'm, doing a, I'm giving a summary of Elisha's great miracles, which are worthy of studying themselves, even after he dies, a sick man comes over and touches his bones and gets healthy. So everything about Elisha had to do with, uh, with health and revival and bringing Kaddish Baruch into this world. And here's arguably one of the most famous stories of all of Elisha's great miracles. Aram's general is named Naaman. And he seeks help because he's gotten saras. He's gotten this, it's incorrectly translated as leprosy, but he gets this bad disease. Um, and he comes down to Elisha, and he's a man who's worthy, you know, he's used to uh, getting a lot of uh, attention and, and, and honor and so on. And when he comes to see Elisha, Elisha can care less. Elisha's an Isha Elohim, he's pure Lashem Shemaim. He doesn't give kavod to Naaman, and he's offended. But Elisha sends instructions, he says, if you want to be pure, cured of your tsaras, what you'll do is you'll go down and dip seven times in the Jordan River. And again, Naaman says, you want me to do what, where? And Elisha says, that's what I'm telling you to do. And Naaman has nothing to lose and everything to gain. So he follows the instruction and he's cured. And his tsaras goes away. And he's, he's, he's uh, forever grateful to Elisha. And he goes back to Elisha and he says, he says, please let me give you a gift. And he offers a very generous monetary prize. And Elisha says, no. Do you remember Ido Hanavi? Ido Anavi was asked to come and dine, and he accepted, and he's devoured by the lion. Uh, Anavi is not allowed to get fringe benefits from his job. Everything that he's doing is coming from Hashem. If there's a benefit, he, he, tells, he tells the person, daven to Hashem better. Um, what did we learn? What most did we learn from this? Don't, don't, get, don't derive any benefit from mitzvahs. You're doing mitzvahs, that's good in itself. Don't try to, don't try to fob up. If you're a rabbi and you do some good things, that's because you're supposed to. It's not because you should get credit for that. So he says, I'm not taking any gift. And so Naaman leaves in one of the great comic scenes in history. Naaman leaves. Now, Elisha has an assistant who heretofore has been a righteous fellow. His name is Gehazi. 
And Gehazi, like he's the executive director of, whole, of Elisha's operation, he says, you, you said no to that gift from Naaman. So without Elisha's knowledge, Gehazi runs after Naaman as he's about to head back to uh, Aram in the north. And he says, excuse me, it must have been a mistake, miscommunication. We'd be, what Elisha meant was we'd be delighted to accept your gift. By all means, please, I'll accept it on his behalf. So Naaman said, certainly. And he gives him the gift. And Gehazi accepts the gifts and receives the gift. And with the gift, he receives the tzaras. And he is plagued with tzaras till his dying day. And worse than that, Gehazi was one of the four commoners. What am I referring to? The mission that keep, keeps coming up in Zanhedrin? He is our next and last figure that we see. Oh, no, not last. Excuse me. We haven't met them all yet. We haven't met all the kings. Uh, we met Ahav and Yeravam. We've certainly met Bilam, uh, Achisophel, Doeg, and now Gehazi is the last one. There's one more king. Who remembers the, the, the seventh figure? Menashe Melech, who's coming in a while. He's not for a little while. He's going he's to round out the figure. But Gehazi, Why? Why so harsh? What did he do that was so terrible? Because he knew better. He knows everything. He was a big tzaddik. And, and he saw his own Rebbe, who is a model of Shemush Chachamim, who you learn from your Rebbe's, not to you know, capitalize on the good fortune of doing Hashem's work. And you're going to try to make a bundle. You're going to take money cynically by uh, capitalizing on that. Say, Moshe. What? I know, but he's trying to profit from it. He's trying to convert it. I mean, one, I, I don't know. I'm not a prophet myself. I, I don't know what their dean is. But one imagines the people who run the Kabbalah Center, the Bergs, and all their cohorts who are involved in taking the sublime mystical secrets of our tradition and selling it to so many Madonnas and other, and other movie celebrities. I don't imagine that's going to go down very well for them at Olam Haba. You, know, you, don't, you don't take our holy tradition and make it into a commodity. Right? And that's what Gehazi represents. That's, that's, that's really what, what he did, and it's despicable. And Elo Chelek Lam Haba. Naaman, for his part, actually becomes a Ger Toshav. A Ger Toshav is not quite a Ger Tzedek. He doesn't convert to Judaism, but he formally and basically accepts the Sheva Mitzvah Benenoch and actually becomes a big Tzadik. And he's an example of um, sometimes the non Jews perceive Hashem more clearly than the Jews, and he, he comes out a big Tzadik in the end. Um, meanwhile, the last comment on this episode, who gets the blame for everything that happened, even though Gehazi Enel Chelek the Gemara um, blames Elisha. He has, he's, he's faulted for a lack of Yamin Moshech and too much Smol Docheh. There's an old pun word we just learned. You know this expression? Yamin Moshech, as a teacher, as a parent, as any figure in authority, you want to have both the right and the left. The right hand you use, you know, to make nice, to pet your students, to bring them close. You mean Moshe, the, the right hand draws close, small doche, the left hand pushes people away. You need, and in different ingredients, in different portions, you need both to be an effective leader. And Elisha now is, is faulted, he didn't have enough Yamin Moshe. He wasn't loving enough with his disciple Gehazi, and that's what caused Gehazi to go off the, the derech. Um, Gehazi assumes that he's beyond tshuva, and that was also a mistake. He could have fixed things, he could have had a chelik al haba, and he never winds up making tshuva. That's what the, that's what the Mishnah indicates. Ain't al haba. Yeah. But even the, even the judge, uh, 
the, the serpent, the one who uh, killed his own daughter, or maybe killed his own daughter? Yiftach. Yeah, he never got, uh, he never asked to shoot her. And yet, yeah, but he never did anything that terrible. He's, he's, he doesn't belong. No, he did, no, he, oh, okay, but he did it. L'shem uh, Shemayim, following Halacha, fulfilling his nether. So he's not a Russia. He's simply a wayward person. The last appearance of Gehazi is not explicit. What is explicit is we know that Aram set siege to Shomron. Shomron is the capital of the north. Shomron is the city in the north. Uh, I would love to take you there. I told you it's one of the most thrilling places that I've guided. Uh, today you need a special army escort to get in. But I, I tell this story when I'm there. Um, they set siege to Shomron, and the people are dying of starvation. There's no food in the city. Um, it's so severe that, like the curse predicts, people start eating their own children. Uh, Elisha tells the people that the famine will end soon. And there are famously four mitzoraim, four people with saras. And the Gemara in Sota tells us it's Gehazi and his three sons. These four men with saras decide to give themselves up to Aram and maybe find some food. And instead of that, Hashem has made a miracle. They discover that the camp has been abandoned. For some reason, Aram has been terrified. Hashem has, has sent them away. And they left so quickly, they left all their food back. So they come and they, they discover not just a little food. They find, they find enough food to supply all of the northern kingdom. And that ends the famine. And that's, that's the last scene we have with Gehazi. So even though they don't have Elam Haba, at least in Olam Haza, he had some virtue, some redeeming moments. Now, uh, the last episode I'm going to talk about for today is as follows. Uh, we learned this from Seder Olam. Um, the next phase in history is at hand. The house of Ahab is still being led by Yehoram, and Elisha sends Yonah, Yonah, who we know about from his Sefer when he's supposed to go warn Nineveh that takes place around this time. Yonah's other mission is to go appoint Yehu as not only the next king, but the next leader of the dynasties. Yehu is described to us as a tzaddik. He doesn't found any um, search engine media site. That's not the one I'm thinking of. I don't know. What, maybe you know of him as a famous individual. No, I mean, like, he is the famous Yehu in the, in the Tanakh, no, if that's what you're thinking of. No, so like, I've heard about I don't think there's so many. He is the most prominent, but I don't think he's the most famous man in history. And, and no. I don't know. I don't know who you're referring to. Uh, you'll, go, you'll, you'll tell me. Uh, no, I'm, I'm thinking Yeshu, sorry. Oh, that's very different. Never mind. No, no, this is just Yehu. No, no. Um, <clears throat> he's going to be the next king, and he's charged specifically. It's pretty, pretty graphic. This, this one I definitely tell when I'm guiding Shomron. He's assigned to go cleanse the blood of Navos. Remember Navos who was murdered because of his vineyard? You're going to finally have him give comeuppance. Actually, Navos appears in a, in a Ruach HaKodesh, Navos in the heavens, uh, seeking retribution by finally destroying the house of Ahav. And in the battle in the Jezreel Valley, Yehoram ben Ahav, the last king of, the nor of, of Ahav, and Ahaziah, who remember ruled for one year, the son of Yehoram and Nathaliah. I've given you a lot of names today. Do you have it straight, more or less? Um, Ahaziah, the young king, the son of, ah of, of Asaliah, they both are fighting in Amic Israel, and they both die. And it's what his mother planned. Asaliah uh, planned the assassination. And that effectively gets rid of all of the house of Ahab as rulers. Ezevel, meanwhile, is in the palace back home. In, uh, in Shomron. And she hears the news. She most certainly knew the prophecy of Eliyahu. 
she, and her reaction is as follows. She goes inside, paints her eyes, adorns her head. Think of this, she's a princess of idolatry. Her very cold, calculated reaction. She looks outside her window and she, she beholds Yehu himself approaching. And she screams down to him, Hashalom Zimri, Horeg Adonav. Did you catch the reference? Peace be on Zimri, the one who kills his masters. Who's Zimri? King for how long? Seven days. And Zimri's story is the story in a, encapsulated in, of the north in a nutshell. What is Zimri? Zimri had killed off Yaharam's household. He'll be king for seven days. He'll be killed off by Omri. But the, she's saying, oh yeah, I know your type. You're coming to kill off all of, uh, all of our households so you can take over as king. And he winks and says, quite so, ma'am. That's exactly, and he's different because he's, he's charged by HaKadosh Baruch Hu himself to cleanse the house, cleanse the north from the house of Ahav. I know, she's in the south. That's true. Hold on. So, he tells his Sarisim, his eunuchs, go up, throw the, queen, the wicked queen down out of the, I want you, here's another good word, defenestrate the woman. Okay, you're going to throw, that means de- throw her out of the window. She is officially defenestrated. You've been, ma'am, you've been defenestrated. Um, to throw somebody out of a window. She is defenestrated. Her mangled body is now devoured by... Come on, come on, come on. How, who, who devours her body? Dogs. A pack of dogs comes. Pretty graphic. Tanakh is interesting, right? Her mangled body is devoured by dogs. And then here's the one little interesting footnote. They, they eat everything except for her head... Her, her, her skull, her hands, and her feet. Her only mitzvah was dancing. That's right. The Gemara tells us that even the most despicable of her shine, even Izevel herself, had virtue. What were her virtues? She had a mitzvah. We're all supposed to have our mitzvahs. Her mitzvah was being misameach, misamachas, the kala. She would attend every wedding and dance ecstatically to make the, 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 the bride happy on her, on her big day. And she sang to the bride, of course. She danced with her feet. She clapped with her hands. And because those body parts had virtue, HaKadosh Baruch Hu arranged that they would, they would survive. They wouldn't, they wouldn't meet the same sordid end that the rest of her body had. We understand that Kaddish Baruch Hu works perfectly. He's the Diana Emes, Mida Keneged Mida, measure for measure. And where everybody, where, where even the wicked deserve reward, they are duly rewarded. Um, as Rosh Hashem tomorrow come on time, we're going to start with Yehu coming. There's still more descendants of the house of Ahab. What happens to them? A great scene uh, that happens there. And then Asalia continues her, her, uh, her cons- conspiracies down in the south.